Good afternoon. You are listening to the podcast of the Budapest City Archives in cooperation with the CEU Podcast Library. My name is Jujana Sagedi Mossack, and I'm the head of Budapest Gallery. And as part of the city's initiative to create a memorial to the victims of rape during war times, my colleagues and I are conducting interviews with scholars and artists who are experts in the field. It is my privilege today to interview Professor James E. Young. James E. Young is a distinguished professor emeritus of English and Judaic and Near Eastern Studies at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, and is also the founding director of their Institute for Holocaust, Genocide, and Memory Studies. Professor Young is the author of numerous books, including Writing and Rewriting the Holocaust, The Texture of Memory, at Memory's Edge, After Images of the Holocaust in Contemporary Art and Architecture, and The Stages of Memory, Reflections on Memorial Art, Loss, and the Spaces Between. Thank you so much for accepting our invitation. I should probably note that this interview is taking place at a time when not all aspects of the project for the memorial to victims of rape during wartime have been clearly defined. In fact, one of our objectives is to explore and learn from earlier similar processes. Professor Young, you have written widely on public art and memorials, and you have also served on several juries for prospective monuments. Which of these instances as a juror do you regard as particularly important? Which of your jury experiences do you think of as successful and which, if any, left you with a feeling of disappointment? I, I think all the ones that, you know, resulted in memorials, uh, uh, which succeeded all kinds of different, you know, varying levels, uh, I'm, I'm very happy with. Um, the 9-11 uh, memorial uh, competition, you know, was gigantic. It was very, very well planned, meticulously planned. And, um, but there was a, a huge backing for it um, at the city level, <clears throat> the government levels. And uh, they had uh, just excellent management uh, you know, going on. They chose, uh, asked 13 jurors, uh, including civic figures, museum directors uh, from all different walks uh, of life. Uh, it was a jury with fantastic uh, chemistry. Um, Everybody in the jury uh, had lived in New York City. Uh, we all felt this kind of happened to us. So it was a strange way of commemorating um, uh, the violence that we felt was somehow perpetrated on us as New Yorkers <laughs> in, in this way. And um, it was also very well defined. Uh, the mandates uh, were, were quite clear. It had taken months and months of work to draw up exactly uh, for whom the memorial would be for, uh, what would be commemorated, toward what end, um, and that we would um, make it as uh, uh, truly a, a, a place for all to come and grieve, understanding that it would have to be a place which would accommodate everybody uh, from all kinds of countries. 
in that uh, we know that uh, nationals from 90 different countries were killed on that day, you know, September 11th, <clears throat> 2001. So it was truly had to be an international memorial uh, as well. Um, all of these victims need to be remembered in their own traditions. So it was a very tall task, um, but we had guarantees that we would be uh, allowed to take all the time we needed um, and that we would also be allowed to fail <laughs> so that we wouldn't be forced into choosing something only because something had to be chosen. And that was a, you know, a bit of a, a concession uh, we had to squeeze out of the governor at the time. Um, and he gave us that promise uh, through clenched teeth. <laughs> But, but he did give it to us. Um, the politicians hate to see these things fail <laughs> because then it, it, they think it reflects badly on them. But the fact that he um, gave us permission to fail reflects very well on him. And it actually allowed the process to go you know, forward and, and, and complete itself. Um, much more tortured was the Dunkball process in Berlin. In fact, uh, there had been a failed competition, uh, which had preceded the one that um, I jury, which resulted in the Peter Eisman uh, design. And it was because politically it was just so, so fraught. And it wasn't clear that really much more than half the country, you know, actually wanted a central memorial um, for Europe's murdered Jews. And in the end, I think uh, we found a, a great design in the Eisman design. Uh, just as we found a great design with the Michael Arad and Peter Walker design in, in New York City. Um, but we knew from the outset that maybe um, half the German population uh, would end up visiting that memorial and the other half would not visit that memorial. <laughs> that there was no such thing as pleasing everyone. It was just our job to create that space um, to allow people to come if they wanted and um, allow people to stay away from if they if they chose. Um, it was also important that we be allowed to fail, although the German government um, would have been very, very unhappy if our if we had not made a recommendation in the end. Um, so it was really important that we as jurors be able to um, provide the rationale as to why a you know, the Eisenman design uh, succeeded as to exactly what it did, uh, why it worked, uh, why we liked it. And we needed to provide that kind of a rationale so that everybody would understand, you know, that we, you know, we were choosing something that we stood by. So that allowed these things to succeed. Um, I was on a jury uh, for an Atlantic City Boardwalk Holocaust Memorial which was never built. Um, we had some great designs. We had some great jurors, um, uh, including some very famous architects uh, and, and Holocaust scholars. But in the end, um, we didn't have the full support, I think, of the community that wanted it. And uh, the community that wanted this memorial didn't have the full support of the surrounding community, the mayor's office. So they really never really received the material support they needed to make it go. We chose a winning design that we liked a lot, but they were never able to uh, raise the money to find consensus there uh, on the boardwalk um, you know, to, to make it go. Um, so if 
I don't know how to describe it's, it's very hard to prescribe um, what will make a memorial work and or prescribe what will not make it work. So my approach has always been when asked, for example, to come to Oslo to advise the Norwegian government and the Labour Party, Labour Youth Party there on how to commemorate the terrible uh, massacre on July 22, 2011. Um, <clears throat> at first, when we sat down, they said, nothing like this has ever happened like this before. We've never had to do anything like this before. We just don't know what to do or where to turn. Please tell us what to do. And I just had to answer simply that, um, you know, my job isn't to tell you what to do, but my job is to keep you company as we figure it out together. And it was such a relief for them <laughs> to know that there wasn't something they were already supposed to have known that in fact, we just had to give ourselves the time and space and sympathy um, and uh, share everything we knew just to work through the process. And that was when I really began thinking a lot about um, this notion of the stages of memory that, and I suggested to them, just as I did in, in Berlin and just as I did in, in New York for the 9-11 um, Memorial, that uh, don't worry too much about what it's going to be. Um, just take care of the process. The memorial has already started. <clears throat> Our discussions, um, the, the public events surrounding it, the debates as to whether or not such a memorial should exist, all of that is part of the memorial. So we just need to enlarge the very idea of the memorial to include how it comes into being, to include uh, how we make it, to include its reception, and possibly to include its possible obsolescence or even destruction over time. That the memorial is its long durée and is not just an object, you know, sited someplace in the city. And kind of that approach allowed everybody to let go a little bit of their fears and kind of the defensive posture that would make the process um, very slow and, and difficult and um, allow everybody really to kind of free associate it into being and do their research. Um, I always invited um, these other juries and other processes to visit other memorials, um, you know, in Europe or in the United States, not not to be told what to do, but to understand um, that everybody has its own process and that um, you can think of yourselves as doing this as part of a large team, um, you know, including the memorial designers and memorial processes uh, that came before you. Um, and so I would, I would advise that in the case of the Budapest Memorial um, as, as well. Uh, there are some processes that have already taken place that would be really great for the initiators, you know, to kind of visit and get to know and think about and, and, and to talk about and to talk to the managers of these other competitions, um, just to just to hear what they went through and how difficult it was um, uh, just to so that they have the company then when they go back and try to make these decisions, you know, back in Budapest as to where this would go, what it might look like, what audiences and visitors it might attract, um, you know, what opposition it might, you know, might attract. All of these things are part of, you know, kind of the, the living process of arriving at a memorial. Most of the victims um, to which this memorial will be dedicated are, are unknown. Uh, many are 
presumably no longer among the living, and many probably never came forward. Rape is a trauma that victims um, are known to frequently um, hide from the outside world, but also to themselves. So um, with regards to September 11th, you you write in, in one of your books that there was a, a continuous memory. Um, but in this case, we are probably dealing more with a continuous repression. Um, do you think that this distance will... Will make it more difficult, or perhaps make it easier to to create a memorial. I think it's going to make it very complicated. Um, the memorial um, is dedicated to the victims, um, but dedicated to victims who would uh, probably have been working very hard to get past their trauma and get past the memory or work through the memory and to leave that memory behind so that they're not disabled by it. Which means that then we would turn the memorial attention to the visitors who come um, and understand that this site may be built not for the victims, even though it's dedicated to the victims, but is built for those who need to know <clears throat> that this too happened during war and that it's actually a very much a, a gendered experience. Um, women's experiences during war and the, and the experiences uh, of rape. Um, I know during the Holocaust, there was uh, a lot of it was taboo memory for a long, long time. And the study of um, gendered experiences during the Holocaust is really kind of now pulled that curtain back. And we understand, for example, that not only um, were women and children uh, killed first, singled out and killed before the men, but for the Nazis, it was more important to kill the biological source of the Jewish people, which would be women. The men would eventually work themselves to death, but the women were the source or the fount of regeneration. And so the Nazis explained very simply, that that's why they had to be killed first, that that was the only way that you actually execute a genocide. And with that in mind, we understand that the, the women's experiences actually epitomized um, the, the mechanics and logistics of genocide. And it became really, really important to make that clear. And I think in this case, um, the you know, the mass rape of women during war and different occupations. Um, you know, I think probably in Budapest, you're going to want to be as specific as you can. It's true that most of the victims will remain unknown, but I think you're going to need some very specific examples so that when we're commemorating these women, we're commemorating both what they went through, how they recovered, and we need to know why we're commemorating them. Um, are we doing it just out of um, empathy's sake or sympathy's sake? Um, toward what ends in understanding the war experience better will we be remembering the women who went through these, you know, these, these traumas and these crimes, you know, war crimes? 
Is it a way just to complete the total composite picture of the war? Or is it a way to create a lens through which the whole war is understood, you know, as a, um, uh, as kind of a, a total war and the destruction of, um, you know, the, the sexual assault somehow is an ultimate means of violence <clears throat> and oppression and a way of, of murder, you know, in, 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 overwhelming a population, a civilian population. And all of these questions, I think, just need to be articulated and laid out as clearly as possible. So, um, I was, I, I did go back and think a little bit about <clears throat> what it means to remember all the victims of rape during all wars. And I think that might be almost too tall of an order. <laughs> I mean, it's by remembering all of them, I worry that no specific cases will be remembered. And I think you need specific cases um, through which you can understand the whole. I don't think you can understand the whole um, you know, as a gigantic forest. I think you really need case studies um, so we know exactly whom we're remembering and why we're remembering. And, and how do particular women's experiences come to stand for all of women's experiences or come to stand for all of the civilians' experiences, you know, under occupation, where, where rape becomes um, not just a, the terrible physical violence, but becomes somehow a, a, a metaphor or a symbol for oppression. Because the moment we create an icon, it will become symbolic. And so... To what extent do we ever allow rape or want rape to be only symbolic of anything when we need to remember the particulars of the crime and you know, what makes it a crime and what the consequences are for the victims of such a crime? Um, right now, there's a lot of um, research and a lot of collecting that's going on, especially um, by the Budapest City Archives. Um, there's a lot of oral history and ego documents that are being collected. Um, but I want to go back to, to, to a more broader view of this, this, um, this subject and, and it's, it's incredible sensitivity, especially right now in light of um, globally perceptible opposition to gender equality. Um, you have written about the, the fear or the worry that there's a potential of redemption in some of these memorials or monuments. And in light of this, I want to ask you if you think that this memorial site would be, would be a subject for, for something like that. Some people, I think, will see almost any memorial in a redemptory way, um, especially national memorials. Um, nations have very little reason to build memorials outside of their own redemptory logic, you know, that um, soldiers died so that a nation might live. Um, we remember in order to, um, to honor the dead and to understand uh, what makes us now whole or a great country. 
Um, so it's become very easy to remember our, our martyrdoms, <clears throat> our victories. Um, but in the in but German cases, uh, every country has actually a national uh, national crimes, I suppose, perpetrated in the national name, uh, which uh, they don't always want to remember. You know, in America's case, it's our founding original sin, you know, slavery. And there was never a place for uh, the memory of slavery and the national memorial heritage in this country until very, very recently. Uh, the Germans struggled with this also, you know, how to remember <clears throat> uh, people murdered in the national name, um, you know, how to reunite a country and the bedrock memory of a national crime. Um, and when answering that question, artists and architects wanted to make sure that um, when remembering something like this, that we don't we don't compensate such loss with the memorial. That the memorial isn't fixing anything. It's not it's not redeeming this terrible destruction in any way with beauty or with meaning or um, um, you know, uh, kind of national valor or any anything like that. But sometimes. Uh, a crime needs to be remembered um, in in the terms of the voids and destruction it left behind, uh, without a feel good end to it. You know, uh, uh, in the end, and that's hard for nations to do. Um, in this case, a memorial, uh, you know, to the memory of women raped in wars. Uh, might bring some measure of comfort to some of the victims who uh, felt perhaps that they were never part of the national equation and that now um, the memory of their experiences is being recognized. And, and that's, that's a bit of a redemption. You know, so there's something built into the Memory Act which would redeem, re redeem this just by making it present and 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 pointing out something that uh, these women went through that hadn't really been recognized before so there's perhaps a bit of a redemptory logic built into the process that you can't avoid but i doubt if any of the victims would want to see um that this memorial would somehow suggest that anything good ever came of these rapes or anything good comes of the memory. Um, it's quite likely that uh, the women victims themselves, many will have a hard time going to such a memorial. Um, this is kind of like um, uh, the New Yorkers in downtown New York. Um, very few visit the memorial down there. Um, you know, some even told me that, uh, so James, now if you could, you know, if your jury could design a place where we could go forget, we would go there, but we don't need to be reminded what happened down here. We're trying to forget it. We're, we're trying to live through it. We're trying to get through it and put it behind us. So that, you know, that just raises the question, you know, it's not really for them. You know, it's for, it's for other people who come for their own reasons. And it's, it's probably a good idea to know what these reasons might be. You know, as as you set out to, you know, design such a memorial and define exactly who it is and who it's for, you know, uh, 
you know, it's very, it's very different to dedicate it to the victims of rape um, and to build a memorial for them. Yeah, to visit. Um, I think those are two different and very distinct, uh, distinct jobs. Much as this memorial will not be tied to a specific event or time, it also won't be tied to a specific location. Um, Knowing the subject matter, do you think there's an ideal or or a good spot that would um, that will work for such a memorial site? I'm thinking, you know. A, a downtown area or or maybe a park what what would you suggest i mean i know budapest has um all kinds of parks and some memorial parks um 19th century statuary 20th century um the memorials monuments uh, the empty shoes memorial along the the, the river wherever it's located it needs to be in conversation with the rest of what you might regard as national memory or at least civic memory, municipal memory, you know, in, in Budapest. Um, it can't ignore its surroundings and it needs to take into account, um, there, there does need to be a rationale or a logic behind citing it in any particular place. So we put it here. So, you know, we put it in front of the, the town hall so that there's a constant reminder of the, you know, the, uh, that there's part, part of the civic infrastructure now includes this memory of, um, of the injustice of rape during the war. So it might be in relationship to a courthouse even. Um, uh, just, uh, again, a reminder that this is um, perhaps memory in search of justice and, and ask what that means exactly. If it's located in some far off, even beautiful, you know, park um, outside the city, uh, that suggests that it's something that should still be maybe a little bit hidden and tucked away, um, as if there were still shame somehow attached to it. So, I mean, all those things become meaningful, and those decisions can can be made, you know, very very rationally. Um, you know, by a group. Um, and I think, you know, especially people who live there and have always lived there who know it really well, who knows the significance of all these neighborhoods, what would it mean to, to build it in a traditionally, you know, what might have been a Jewish neighborhood or what might have been a, um, a, a Roma neighborhood or uh, are there neighborhoods now which are largely immigrant or their neighborhoods now which are largely former aristocracy um all of those things are matter and uh is is there uh i mean maybe you can you can tell me what would you regard as kind of the the civic heart of budapest like where is, is there a civic heart where there are government courthouses buildings um, where commemorations are, are held uh, to remember the war, for example? Or... There, there are several areas, I think, of Budapest um, where it, it depends if you, if you look at, you know, from the municipal or from the state um, um, viewpoint. Um, there are 
so charged that I actually find it very difficult to position something like this in any of them. But I also think it's a very um, dangerous idea to put it somewhere in the outskirts. I think it has to be somewhere, I would suggest somewhere um, close to the center where more people would come across it. Is it clear in the mind of Budapest that this is a, a municipal memorial and not a national memorial, or can it be both? Well, it is commissioned by the municipality, um, and it is definitely not a national memorial. So members of the advisory board and um, both boards, actually, they, they are very insistent that this should be regarded in the widest possible manner. Um, with regard to location and time. When, when you're talking about building memorials in the capital of any nation, um, there is a little bit of a de facto nationalist cast to it. it. It might be regarded whether or not it was intended as a national memorial, but it might come to be regarded as a national memorial by people who are visiting Budapest, for example. It becomes a Hungarian memorial to the memory of um, the victims of rape during war. Yeah, well, and there's some areas of Budapest which are, are sort of, you know, being taken over by different different powers, and and you know, it's um, it's there have been statues that were removed and other statues placed in those locations. And you know that that location has a history. And so it's, I wonder if every city is as charged with its public squares as, as Budapest is probably, but, but we definitely. Probably the people who, yeah, the people who know better. Um, so I wonder, <clears throat> Is there a square in in Budapest um, where perhaps a a, a well-known um, Hungarian feminist writer or or parliamentarian may have lived? Um, I, I think of in Trondheim, Norway. There's a square where there's um, they call her the Norwegian Anna Frank. You know, little. Uh, you know, Seely, who uh, there's a statue of her um, on a on a bench with a suitcase, and only because that she lived there, but but it becomes you know connected to um, the house from which she was deported, and so it's commemorated that way. And if if there's a a very particular case, or even you know even naming some of the women who agree to be named and who come to stand as representatives, so very specific representatives of uh, and victims um, standing up and standing up to the traditional taboo and shame is really important, you know, to, it gives them a place to stand in solidarity together. And I think that will be part of the point of the memorial is a place to congregate and to stand up against the, the taboo. I mean, it's, it's very much a statement. And it's a it's creating something out of nothing, which is going to be really, really important and and really hard to do. Um, do you or do you see a 
a square or a garden somewhere in the center of the city, uh, which seems to be missing a locus or missing a center, something which is kind of uh, a ready-made space waiting for waiting to become the congregating place for just something like this? Um, well, actually, the, the committee has compiled a list of locations, oh, and cool. they've, they've actually reduced it to maybe four or five um, that we have currently on the, the list. And most of them are, are parks or parkish-like areas. And and they're 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 in the middle of the city. I would I would say they're not the outer um, districts. Um, sure. But but no location jumps to mind that would suggest some sort of association with a with a feminist writer or. Mm-hmm. But I will pass on your your suggestion and your advice. <laughs> yeah, I mean sometimes sites are just chosen. Uh, because um, <clears throat> they're empty. The the Dyke Mall was built in the former ministerial gardens because it was really a no man's land after 1989. There was nothing there, and it was available. Um, it turns out to have been very close to Hitler's bunker um, <clears throat> and the Tiergarten, so it turned out to be a, a fantastic place for a central memorial like that. But the, the reasons don't always make complete sense, you know, at the time, I mean, you're going to make it meaningful by putting by putting something there, um, and then it will now be in conversation with nearby other nearby memorials, and it becomes part of um, part of what I guess we might end up calling the memorial matrix. You know, um, in in Budapest, you know, people might go from one to the other and be seeing if there were several war memorials. <clears throat> Um, nearby, that would be context, you know, that that would work. Um, And it also turns out to be a great counterpoint, I would even call it a counter, a counter monument to the traditional heroic war figure. Um, Wars are often remembered just in the, in the, in the icon of the hero and, and the, and the triumph. Um, even the triumph of survival, <clears throat> you know, uh, you know, eventually being liberated, <clears throat> and you know, even being liberated from a formerly um, uh, a kind of government in in Hungary that you didn't want, you know. So it's it's always about liberation, and again, it's got that built-in redemption. So this could be kind of a, a counter a counterweight to it. It doesn't negate the, the hero, but it it adds a counterweight to it, that there were heroic experiences of great victory and sacrifice, and then there was kind of pure victimization, where women come to represent all the victims of war in their, in their innocence. That is, um, civilian victims of war uh, were in the wrong place at the wrong time uh, there was uh, there was no reason you know for their for their massacre and and here uh, women and children often come to um, exemplify the innocence of the victims of war uh, especially civilian victims in that way and so that that the, the memorial will become an emblem or an icon 
you know, that will counterweight, I think, the other, the other traditional icons of war remembrance in, in Budapest. And it'll make it complicated. The, the, the most interesting story to which you might compare your process, I think, is in Pristina, you know, in, in Kosovo. Um, <clears throat> the Kosovo uh, memory of the Serb war against the Kosovar Albanians, uh, after which Kosovo the state it was established, um, is a memorial to the women uh, victims of sexual assault <clears throat> and sexual violence at the hands of the Serbs uh, during that war. Um, and by extension, <clears throat> this memorial becomes a little bit of a memorial as well to the victims in Bosnia and Herzegovina, also the victims of mass rape uh, during the 90s, <clears throat> again, by, by the Serbs and their, and their allies uh, you know, during that attempted genocide as well. So the averted genocide of Kosovar Albanians at the hands of the Serbs is now remembered in Pristina um, with two main memorials. One is a big statue of President Bill Clinton, who put together the, um, the bombing campaign to stop the Serbs. So he's the hero. Um, and then the other averted genocide is remembered at the attempt of mass rape and the actuality of mass rape of Kosovar Albanian women at the hands of the Serbs. And this is a gigantic memorial. And that's, that's the main war memorial in Pristina. You know, that's, that's the memorial of the birth of the nation after the Serb onslaught. And I think one of the results of this is that these women have now, um, uh, many of the women who actually were raped and assaulted uh, are, are well known now. Their voices are very strong. And they have now become um, the new uh, leaders of parliament. And in fact, one is going to about to be um, sworn in as prime minister. And I think there's a direct line between the national memorial commemorating the victims of the Serb onslaught in the figure of the women and the women who are now assuming leadership roles. Many of them, uh, many of them remembered explicitly in this memorial and named. And they've taken that experience and now have become um, leaders of the country and, and are regarded not just as victims, but as um, um, having, I, I suppose, having grown stronger because of it is a terrible thing to say. But they're regarded um, as much, much stronger than many, many of the, the men who traditionally fought were seen to have fought you know, during that war. And so uh, it's happening kind of right now. So it's, it's very interesting to follow. And they're, they're pretty proud of this memorial as well. Uh, the men are proud of it uh, as well, because, which is very complicated, um, because often to commemorate <clears throat> the mass rape of women is also to commemorate that their um, that the men who traditionally would be seen as their caregivers and protectors could not protect them from 
from the Serbs, you know, in this case. And that often they were they were away fighting or they were killed first and then the women, you know, were assaulted. And so it reminds, it could remind the men of their um, of their own losses and their, their own uh, vulnerability and, and even of their own weakness in a way. So it's a very complex dynamic embodied in that memorial in Pristina. But I think as a process, um, it would be fascinating for everybody, you know, for the committee in Budapest to, to research and to visit and to see what the consequences of such a memorial have been. Um, huge consequences now in the way that uh, Kosovo is about to be governed. You know, yeah, we hope it's going to be governed much better now, but it's it's got all of its own problems, government, parliamentary problems. Um, earlier, you mentioned the, the importance of the commissioner um, who commissions such a monumental memorial. Um, do you think it is always the case that an uh, initiative from the bottom up uh, is advisable. I think with the kind of the the rise of pluralist democracies, uh, they, you have a better chance of succeeding if it's coming from, you know, coming from the community up, and if you can even recognize um, community efforts as the beginning of a memorial, even if these efforts end up. Um, turning into a larger government initiative that keeping it rooted in the needs of a community is really important. I mean, traditionally it was only the needs of a government <clears throat> that seemed to matter. And so they would just, you know, cram national memory down the throat of the people and say, this is what you're going to remember. And this is why you're going to remember it. And it's going to make you and make us more patriotic, et cetera. And that's, Everybody, every nation has done that. Um, but now we understand that that kind of that, that monumental, um, kind of the monumental authoritarianism uh, is so unlikable and distasteful to the masses uh, who want to be able to speak with their own voices that they don't, it doesn't, just doesn't work that way anymore. And that those memorials become obsolete very, very quickly. That the memorials that last are the ones that are kind of built from the bottom up. Um, which isn't to say that, you, that experts should be ignored. Um, and I know, you know, we talked a little bit about that once. Um, you know, juries, I think, should be composed of all different shapes and sizes. And the successful ones uh, are successful because of chemistry and not just because of expertise in one place, one way or another. But you do want experienced, um, experienced jurors. And the most successful jurors are those who, who have perhaps sat on other juries and processes, who are very generous and open to all kinds of things, who don't go in with a very strict agenda that, yes, it's going to be figurative, or yes, it's going to be abstract, or you know, it's going to be big, or it's going to be small, or it's going to be horizontal, or it's going to be vertical. Um, you need people who you know, really respect the open give and take and debate. Um, 
and and you want to be able to trust their eye you know so that the the art that ends up getting chosen is very much art of its time we can't pretend it's the 19th century or even the 20th century you know, it's the 21st century so our our taste in art and our aesthetic is of a very particular time and place now and that's really okay um we have a preoccupation with landscape art now it's quite possible that this will be a preoccupation that underpins this kind of memorial it might it might be a garden memorial it might be something that needs to be nourished and taken care of and tended the way that memory is i imagine it will be a kind of a a walking memorial, a place you walk into and out of, because that's also the preoccupation of contemporary artists, uh, where the memorial is seen as a process and not a fixed inanimate object. You know, something that you move into and move out of and you take you take with you. It's opening opening that space in the landscape that opens the space within us. And um, that could be come in all different forms. Um, it probably won't be a Pieta. It probably won't be a Liberté figure, you know, from you know, from the 19th or 18th or 19th century. Um, but everybody will will find a consensus around the thing that represents this time and place, this Budapest at a particular time and place, the aesthetic of the the curators. Um, you know, you you have your your hand on the pulse of contemporary art there in Budapest. And I would just embrace it. And, uh, you know, the processes can go all kinds of directions where you end up inviting 20 artists or you have a completely open competition and, and everybody has to decide that for themselves. I, I, I used to believe very strongly uh, always in having open blind competitions that you get to see more that way. And then you get to show all these submissions and that all the work that went into say 500 blind blind submissions um, is part of the memorial too. That only one memorial might be built, but it's built on the, on the shoulders of all those other memorials and that they might be taken into account and shown in a catalog, for example, you know, as part of the process of getting there. Um, but sometimes that's it's impractical and it just could might be in Budapest that you are going to you know make a list of 18 artists or archi and architects and teams that you know you you love and you know well um and invite them all to submit something you know and, and you, you will have to pay them all as well to you know to take the time it takes um but arriving at that yeah, really can be done systematically and and you'll know how things work best in budapest so going to the outside and asking for advice um is is good um but i think the community will know best you know how to conduct you know the process that will get them you know where they where they want to go um i love the idea of showing as many of these designs as possible you know in in your museum or you know in the garden itself um getting public input um it's not that everybody needs to vote on it but 
have it be uh, an open discussion with lots of lots of people writing about it in the, in the papers, you know, in journals, um, letting the artists explain their work to everybody in a public setting. You know, really to make it a, a you know about a public conversation, which would be great, and I really encourage that. It, it can be a little um, messy, but it's much, much better than kind of doing it behind closed doors and then suddenly surprising everybody with your, <laughs> you know, with the result. So, you know, make it kind of process oriented and it'll, it'll succeed. Even if you end up not finding something, you will actually have already built this wonderful base, you know, and, and the memorial will actually have already begun, you know, whether or not you end up with one, one final design, you know, in, in the very first round, it might take a couple rounds. It might take a couple competitions. That's okay too. Yes. I mean, I think the base is already good. Yeah. No, it's, it's an amazing project and it's really one of a kind. I, you're trying to do something that really, um, nobody's really done before. So what is the role of the jury? I mean, in this case, um, we will have an exhibition of probably um, selected proposals. Um, so it will definitely have maybe two rounds. Um, but what, how, how should the jury work? Should the jury work sort of as, a, as an advisory board where they might point to weaknesses or even make suggestions? What is the role of the commissioner? And the Well, they, they get to work any way you want you 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 will write the rules um they can make a recommendation <clears throat> uh they might you might ask them to give you three finalists and then the uh the the committee organizing committee <clears throat> would decide from those three finalists um you would certainly want the jury to be able to uh uh, think and talk a lot about these and maybe even make uh, tweaks and recommendations for small changes. Um, I think so-called interventionist juries are really okay. Um, artists and architects don't always agree that it's okay, but the most successful competitions I've seen uh, are the ones where the artists and architects are open to suggestions um, so that it's really a team working together so all the all the memorials, I mean, the 9-11 memorial, the Denk Mall, all, all the huge you know, memorials like this were all negotiated um, between jury and an artist. Um, so that's, <clears throat> they, they might be scaled down, they might be scaled up, um, certain elements go, other elements are introduced. And so that <clears throat> it's kind of a, a team building, you know, effort. And when you get really authoritative jurors, um, artists love listening to them. I mean, it becomes a real conversation. So on the jury in New York, you know, with Michael Van Valkenburg and, and Maya Lin, um, you know, th these are, you know, artists, architects whose words really matter to all this, all the, the applicants and su submissions. So we had fantastic conversations about, you know, what can work, what doesn't work. And, and they weren't bitter and they weren't argumentative in any way. They were just real conversations about what we love about this and, you know, what we don't understand about that. And, and that depends again on the strength and, and confidence, you know, of your jurors. 
um, who should be well informed and and should be um, as unimpeachable as possible, so that it's it's clear that they don't have political axes to grind or that they're not representing a whole kind of art, but that they're really open to uh, finding uh, a design that speaks to the largest number of people and that can really accommodate not just the generation building the memorial, but all the generations to follow you know, as well. And that means uh, people with patience and um, you know, who, who really want the memorial to exist. You know, I, I, again, I don't think there's a perfect um, um, composition. You know, I don't know if it should be half men, half women, all women. You know, I, um, I think there's a um, that conversation. Um, you know, probably needs to happen among the committee members. You know, and I think you you know people out there. If you're going to make it international, you, you could you know surely go outside of Hungary as well. Because it does sound like you you want this to be almost a, a universal you know memorial in some way, which I think is really hard to do. Yes. But it, it looks like right now it's being defined in kind of universal terms. So I I mean if I had any suggestion, it might mean to to define it more closely. Um uh, again in its Hungarian context and in the context of particular wars, 20th century wars and occupations. Um, and maybe with the examples of, um, you know, contemporary examples of mass murder of, I'm sorry, mass rape of women as a, as a means of genocide, uh, whether it's in Bosnia and Herzegovina or you know, Kosovo or, or uh, Europe during World War II. So you suggest that both geographically and with regards to the time, the period, it should be narrowed down? Yeah, I, I think so. Because if if not, um, it becomes all and and nothing at the same time. I think there really need to be you know, specific examples of the wars and and also as a, as a means of attempted genocide and sometimes as a means of unfortunately successful genocide. And then, you know, people understand already then why you're doing this. You know, you're, you're bringing back into existence something which really has been shamed away and was a taboo and which is unfortunate because it's very much a part of, of uh, both ancient war and contemporary war. <clears throat> and and if if part of the aim is to call it out in order to begin to work against such things from happening in the future, that needs to be recognized. That this is part of the reason for for such a memorial now. Finally, I want to ask you ask you about what happens afterwards. So um, with regards to Germany's um, Holocaust memorial in Berlin, you mentioned the worry that, quote, a finished monument would, in effect, finish memory itself. So if we suppose that every possible document um, has been found, um, 
and has been typed up and scanned and studied. And the competition for the memorial site was announced. The proposals were debated. Um, the winner was chosen and it was um, established and there were opinions voiced and heard. How do we continue the, the process of remembering? I think you built into the memorial um, a, uh, a programming element that there will be um, a series of not just annual, but um, um, maybe even semi-annual events to be held there to commemorate. Um, uh, I think there are now United Nations uh, resolutions which are recognizing you know, women as primary victims uh, of, of wars and res resolutions against um, you know, sexual violence in wars. So it becomes that, that kind of a stage staging area for these gatherings, um, public talks. There probably should be a foundation attached to it that becomes a little bit of a, um, what the Holocaust Museum in Washington calls a com committee on conscience. It might be a bit of a, um, um, uh, a kind of a, a, a warning station uh, calling out new new crimes and calling attention to uh, new mass crimes against women um, as part of political oppression or part or as part of war. Um, the you know, for example, Yazidis at the hands of ISIS. Um, you know, twenty thousand Yazidi women. You know, taken you know, from their families and turned into, yeah, slaves and, and wives of, uh, of ISIS. And now they're coming back. So it becomes a place where all of these very specific stories, it becomes the place where all of these specific stories can be, can be told and remembered. Um, <clears throat> and in that way, it, it, it really can open that space for congregating around it, even if it's virtual congregating, even if, um, yeah, maybe, maybe there'll be demonstrations there to, to call out, you know, ongoing oppressions around the world. And that will be the only place where they take place because there's that context, you know, for them. So building into the memorial, the capacity for it to host all of these events and programming, you know, can be part of the process, but it's true. Um, you know, I, I was a bit of a skeptic of the Dyke Mall in the beginning because I worried that the German government was doing this in order to put a big um, gravestone over the memory. So that would be that. Yeah, it was kind of like putting a lid on it. And now they did their job, they can go away from it. But in fact, the place that is built uh, welcomes people from all parts of the city. Um, you know, it's completely accessible. And that was really important to become part of the city grid. So it can be entered from all directions. It can be exited from all directions. And it becomes part of the life of the city. And so that's where um, finding the site is, is really important. If you go outside, you find it in the outskirts of the city, it, it, it's kind of tucked away, as opposed to being part of the, the living animated matrix of, 
of city life in Budapest. Um, so you can help design that. And, and then the artists and architects will find that way. You, you can make this part of the mandate, actually. You, know, you can ask the artists and architects to describe how design elements will encourage this kind of programming or this kind of reception and, and interaction with visitors. And that can be part of the, the memorial mandate, that, that these are the 10 things um, that we would like the memorial to be able to accomplish. And you know, it's up to you to find the design to to make this happen. Um, so that that ends up going back to your own memorial mandate, which which isn't a design mandate so much as a kind of a, a a a thesis of all the things that you would like that memorial to accomplish, you know, and how you would like to see it live over time, you know, into the future, and not become a place that uh, people avoid. You know, and people never go to, um, or that they visit once and they've done it so they don't have to do it again. You know, they, they have to visit and they're changed inwardly by that experience. So it stays in them and draws them back. And, you know, continues to live, you know, kind of a, uh, an active life in the, in the mind of the city. Maybe if once we have drawn up the, the announcement for the memorial site for the call, which will be an open call. Um, maybe I could ask you to look at it, to give it a glance. Oh, I would, I would love to. Yeah, I, and again, I would free associate. I wouldn't, yeah, I wouldn't probably try to change too much. But if I thought something was missing or something would be, you know, could be added, I would love to. Would love to see it. And and again, work with you in just any way I can to help you know, the process. Um, it takes a lot of sharing from a lot of people, you know, to make it all go. And so, so I'm, I'm completely here for you and, and the process in any way you want. Professor Young, thank you so much for your ideas and suggestions. Your books are blueprints for us, and this conversation will be immensely helpful. So thank you again. I'm glad to follow up anyway. And I will be in touch today. Okay, I look forward to it, and congratulations on what really looks like an amazing and very ambitious you know, project. Um, uh, I can't wait to, to help and see, see it unfold with you. Thank you.